Welcome to FedWatch, a Bitcoin magazine podcast. Before we get into the show, let's give a quick shout out to our sponsors. First and foremost, you know who it is. It is Swan Bitcoin. This is one of the best places to stack stats in America. They are available in 49 states and they look nothing like Coinbase. They look nothing like Kraken. It is not a trading interface. It is really a place that you can send your mom, your aunt, your sister, whoever is not, you don't want them to see some crazy altcoin chart and, you know, all this trading UX. You want them to be saving Bitcoin. Swan, to have this thing is called the sentence. You walk through the sentence, you say how much I want to save, how often I want to save it, and to what address I want to send it to. It's really that easy. Check out Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. Next up, eToro. For those of you who are into trading, <laughs> check out eToro. eToro is an amazing one-stop shop where you can buy Bitcoin and pull it off the exchange, but you can do so much more. You can index invest. You can test out your TA skills on a virtual platform where it has no real skin in the game, or you can copy trade the best traders. You are passively getting exposure to an active trading strategy. Check out eToro at eToro.com. Last but not least is BISC. BISC is an awesome, awesome application that enables you to buy Bitcoin and sell Bitcoin without having to register with the service. You download the BISC software. You use the BISC software to coordinate with other buyers and sellers, and you can buy Bitcoin in a very, very easy way from the safety of your home without having to participate in KYC or any of that other kind of registration activity. Highly recommend to give BISC a try. Amazing open source project, amazing platform, and again, very, very easy to use. Check out BISC. Welcome, everyone, to the eighth episode of the macro-focused Bitcoin podcast by Bitcoin Magazine, uh, formerly, officially, uh, formerly known as WTF is happening with the Fed. Um, Ansel and I decided that with the change of host, uh, we should also change the name, uh, and we are now going to be going with FedWatch. So FedWatch, a Bitcoin Magazine podcast, episode eight. Um, we are going to be focusing on the current unemployment nightmare. In general, the show is going to be a macro podcast that acknowledges Bitcoin's role in the future of global economics. Excited to get into episode eight with Ansel. Um, he has a great rundown here, teasing out what's happening uh, in human employment across the globe. Bullish on the name change. I like FedWatch. That's uh, pretty good. Um, uh, I didn't think that I would have a lot to say about this particular topic, even though I'm the one that brought it up. But uh, no, I think this is going to be a great episode and we're going to have lots of tangents that we can go on. Before we started recording, you actually were telling me about uh, a book that you're working on. Before we get into the actual content, why don't, why don't we jump into that? It started as a simple Bitcoin dictionary where I was just going to list some terms, uh, but it's grown and grown out to over 180 terms now with discussions and background and footnotes and all sorts of stuff. So that should be coming out hopefully in the very near future. I've been telling my uh, listeners on my podcast about it for a while. It's meant to be a primer and a reference for newcomers into the space. A good little gift if you have 
parents or brothers and sisters or some, you know, cousins or whatever you want to nudge in the right direction, maybe you could drop them a copy of the Bitcoin dictionary. Are you going to call it the Bitcoin dictionary? Uh, yeah, that's my intention. If, if it's not taken by the time I get there. <laughs> oh man, you got to go claim it right now. I know. It's money. It's really amazing seeing all the Bitcoin books in the space. Um, and I've just, you know me, I'm interested in altcoins too, just kind of comparing and contrasting. Um, and it's amazing just seeing how many Bitcoin books there are and how few other cryptocurrency or blockchain focused books there are. Usually it, it kind of lumps it all together as like one thing or it's a Bitcoin book, which is, uh, I think is bullish for Bitcoin. Yeah, I was just talking on my Discord server yesterday uh, that the newsletter what is currently the new podcast, and I think books are going to be like the new newsletter um, because everyone seems to have a newsletter now, and I think like in a couple years' time, everyone's going to come out with their own Bitcoin book. So I'm trying to be ahead of the curve a little bit. Let's get into this topic. For me, this really uh, is an important topic to me because this is when I really kind of started to understand what a deflationary cycle that we're in is where I kind of saw like, wow, everyone is all at the same time, not working. And then on top of that, they're not paying their rent. And on top of that, those landlords are not going to be able to meet their obligations. And like, there's this deflationary crunch that happens because of kind of like huge unemployment Um, to make things even more interesting. The stock market has pretty much V shape recovered and we're seeing amazing just these amazing images of uh, Dow Jones record-breaking days while at the same time record-breaking unemployment. And it just, it seems incredible to compare and contrast, you know, reality to uh, the quote-unquote stock market. Why, why don't you set the groundwork? We can start with discussing just unemployment in the U.S. and then maybe we can move to discussing some numbers globally, but we're really in a very precarious situation. Yeah. Just to comment on what you said there real quick about deflation. Um, yeah. When it becomes personal, it's easier to understand, but just think about the unemployment applied to nation states. I mean, there's a dollar shortage around the world, uh, just like there is a dollar shortage if you get laid off. So that is totally deflationary. Okay. Let's get into this uh, from the U S side. Everybody is pretty much aware. I think that, you know, they've seen the headlines, so many millions of people unemployed. Now, the number I have here is the numbers I have are from the BLS for the United States. And there are a lot of other great sources like shadow stats and other things. But the unfortunately, the government sources are uh, have the most data. So uh, the April numbers for the U.S., 14.7% unemployment, breaking that down to the state's Uh, Nevada and Michigan topped the list with 28% and 22% respectively. I was kind of surprised. I thought New York would be number one and maybe like Louisiana or Illinois, uh, some of these harder hit areas, but now it's Nevada and Michigan. The states that are doing the best are Connecticut, Minnesota, and Nebraska all coming in around 8% unemployment. I tried to look, I tried to look into the metro areas, uh, you know, because the BLS does have metro area data, nothing current as of April. So they only have March numbers or, or older than that. What do the March numbers look like? And on top of that, like, what do these numbers mean? Are these new, un- is, is this new unemployment? Is this total unemployment? Uh, no, these are, this is total unemployment. The March numbers for the metro areas, 
they were starting to trend up a little bit. Just like if you look at the United States number for, uh, for March, it was trending up from three to 4%. And then we had a huge jump up to 14%. So it's kind of similar in some of the metro areas. Um, I wanted to break it down and say like what region of a state, you know, is, is better and, and see if we could get some uh, kind of insight that way. But um, there's nothing good in that respect at this time. Gotcha. And then, like, who are they not counting in these numbers? Because, I mean, I've heard, like, 40% unemployment, 30% unemployment. You know, it looks like only Nevada is getting close to 30. Um, you know, what's kind of behind these numbers? Well, there is the labor labor force participation kind of confounding factor. And that is, you know, who's in the labor force. Um, if you had a job in March, but then you got laid off and you just are not working. So when you answer these surveys for the BLS, you say, no, I'm not looking for a job. Then you're counted as out of the labor force. So this is just the people that don't have a job and are actively looking for new employment. If you count up all those people, it's probably, yeah, something like 30, 30% nationally, I would say. It, it makes sense why you disclose people that aren't looking for jobs, but I'd be very interested in seeing like how many people had jobs that no longer have jobs. You can kind of see some of those numbers. I didn't pull those out here, um, but new unemployment claims. I remember there was like a single week that had like 15 million unemployment claims in the United States. So those are adding up. I believe there's still about 2 million a week are going in new unemployment filings. Um, One of the kind of trends in the United States over the last 10 years or since the great financial crisis is Uh, just a lowering of the amount of people in the labor force, you know, and population increase is not stopping. Yes. uh, A lot of people aren't having kids as much as they used to, but you know, the, the population of the United States goes up every year, but the labor force goes down. So um, that's an interesting trend. And maybe we could tease out some of the things that has to do with culturally, um, economically, what that means, but um, that gets a little bit more political, I think. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what to make of that. There's just so many factors, but I have to imagine that the misallocation of capital that emerges from central banking and fiat money both causes people to work more than they need to, as well as cause people to exit the workforce in circumstances where they necessarily wouldn't be exiting the workforce. Or um, in the case of um, millennial and Zoomer boys, not entering the workforce at all. Yeah. And at the late stages of, you know, this debt super cycle or whatever you want to call it, uh, people lose hope. So like you said, those, those young men aren't entering the labor force. I mean, I, I exited the labor force about uh, six years ago and haven't looked back. Yeah. That's interesting. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Like, what is it like to, I mean, obviously you're productive, uh, but you're legally not counted as part of the labor force. Yeah. Um, I just, I got out of the military six years ago. I had three kids at the time. Now I have four. And so I'm productive in raising those kids and productive in my podcast and my investments and, and things like that. So, um, I stay very busy, but yeah, I wouldn't be counted uh, as part of the labor force. It's, uh, it, it's interesting how, um, maybe people are, are refinding this world where, um, they can kind of work for themselves without necessarily being part of the labor force. And uh, there's a, a cultural revolution on that front. And I mean, who knows if that's enabled because of UBI or because of massive Bitcoin wealth or something else. 
Um, but uh, it would, it's definitely going to be interesting to see, um, you know, how what percentage of these people ever go back to being considered part of the labor force. Yeah, I think it's definitely um, a cultural narrative. Um, yeah, I think if I would have, if this would have happened 30 or 40 years ago, um, we would have seen a big return to localism. But now with the internet, it's kind of, you know, uh, people like myself, we work on the internet. So it's not necessarily um, uh, trans translated down to the localism level, but that is definitely needed, I believe. Um, also, as part of the labor force participation, I think it was artificially, in, you know, elevated in the first place. If you look at incomes for the last 40 years, they're pretty much flat. And our generation, uh, we can't say like we are going to be more successful than our parents. And that's the first generation in like three or four in the United States that the kids don't have this like, I don't know what the word is. They don't have a brighter future. They don't have a, a greener, you know, greener pasture on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have a rosy outlook of the future. They're kind of depressed and, and the entire economy is that way. And more people have moved uh, like uh, dual income uh, families uh, have started up. So uh, I think the labor force has been artificially inflated, if that makes any sense. I mean, uh, if you look at like uh, WTF happened in 19, uh, 1971, you can see that work and productivity have gone up, but income it has not necessarily gone up and buying power has definitely not gone up. So beating people down to the point where they don't even want to participate is something that has been happening for a long time. Yeah, I agree. Should we move on to European numbers or global numbers? I guess, well, before we jump into that, like, what do you make of the total U.S. situation? Like, out of these kind of uh, three play, uh, three regions of the world that I wanted to compare here, Europe, the U.S., and Japan, um, I'm neutral on the U.S. We have the highest jump in unemployment pretty much uh, out, reported out there in the world, and it has a flavor of get it over with quickly. You know, let's, uh, when a recession hits, you want to kind of, you want to let people fail. Right. And so this is, there is some vestige of a free market left in the United States, even though there's a bunch of stimulus and there's a bunch of QE and all this stuff trying to save the financial system. Um, it, it's almost like the society of the United States still has a vestige of free market in it. So, I'm kind of neutral to a little bit bullish. I mean, overall, I'm very bullish on the United States over the next 20 to 50 years. Uh, so I think it, it'll pass. Okay. So let's talk about other countries. Uh, it seems like other countries are taking much bigger steps just to save everything to maintain employment, quote unquote. Uh, let's, can we get into that? Yeah. Well, I just have a few uh, North America here with the U S and Canada now also at 14% like the U S um, Mexico. I don't have that on the notes here, but it is, um, has been pretty flat. There have, they haven't seen a huge surge in unemployment and their labor force participation is uh, flat as well. So uh, Mexico seems to be doing the best in our neck of the woods going over to Europe though. That's what really surprised me was the kind of average increase in unemployment was less than 1%. I was not expecting that with Italy uh, and Spain and the UK and all those places that were really hit hard by the virus. I was expecting them to have a bigger jump, but Italy actually went down from nine 
to 8% unemployment. Um, I guess you could explain that away with the labor force participation, but Europe in general uh, seems to um, have a stronger safety net, you know? When you say they have a stronger safety net, you're saying that um, they can manipulate that number. I've seen a bunch of uh, articles about Europe and they are uh, providing a bunch of checks to keep people on the payroll of the different companies where they came from. So there's not a lot of layoffs. Um, People are still staying home and this is still the same economic fallout that we're seeing in the United States, but they're just keeping them on payroll. Um, And that costs money. That costs a lot of money. Now there's two ways to get that money, either QE or taxes. And uh, most recently, just today, there was a, talk about an 850 billion euro bailout package. And this is, you know, from uh, uh, finance through QE. And with like on the last episode, we talked about the Bundesbank versus the ECB in the legal uh, battle. I mean, they have to pay for this somehow. They can't, might not be able to pay for it with QE. And so when the, when the check comes due, I mean, Europe could be really hit. And so out of these three areas we're going to talk about here, uh, Europe, I, I'm the most bearish about because I think it has yet to hit Europe. My girlfriend's company is a global company. They have offices in Europe. They have offices, you know, across the globe. Um, in Europe, they were legally not allowed to lay off the majority of their employees. Uh, in the U.S., they're in the travel space. In the U.S., they lie, laid off a significant portion, double digits. Um, mm. So you're right. Like Europe is even more propped up. Like these numbers, you know, are, are fake, are even more fake and, and it, you know, artificial. Yeah. And, and the social safety net has to be paid for somewhere, even if it is paid for with QE. Um, now it's like QE has a big roadblock in its way with the Buddhist bank. So I don't know. It could get ugly quickly. You even sent me a, that article today about the Netherlands and they're thinking about uh, leaving the EU. So uh, it's getting ugly in Europe. What do you think is the timeline for Europe to blow up? Oh man. Um, it always takes longer, but I think it's going to be faster than a lot of people are thinking. So I would say five years. Europe as it is, does not make it through the decade. No, I don't think so. In the notes here, you, you complain about just how bad the data is. It sounds like you don't even have numbers on Japan. No, we have numbers on Japan, but not from many countries. There's a few South American countries that have good data, maybe South Africa in Africa. Most of those continents are dark, like Southeast Asia, dark. We don't know about their labor force participation. We don't know about their unemployment. Some of the numbers are like two years old. Japan, though, we do have good data, and that is uh, 60% labor participation. Uh, That's been really flat for a long time. And they're at two or three percent unemployment, and th- they haven't had really a big spike during this crisis. Um, I'm generally bullish on d- Japan. I'm bearish on China. So there's going to be a swap out, like in, as China, I think, as there's a vacuum made from a closed-off China, Japan's going to come in and really benefit from that. So um, I, out of all of these places and all these numbers, I'm bullish on Japan neutral on the U.S. and bearish on Europe, just looking at their unemployment. Um, Does it make sense to jump into China? You kind of alluded to being bearish on China as well. Well, we don't really have good numbers on China. Um, 
they report 6%, but they've been reporting 6% for a long time. And there's no way that they're <laughs> with how long they've been dealing with this. They, they've been dealing with this longer than anybody. And uh, they, there's no way that it's still a 6%. But of course they have um, communism over there. So everyone is kind of on the payroll. I'm not sure exactly how that works with employment. I know that there's a lot of migrant, you know, like uh, migrant workers from the countryside that come in uh, to the coast to work. And there was lots of stories about half of the labor force not showing back up to work, et cetera. So um, yeah, we, we have zero idea really about the situation on the ground in China. So what in particular makes you feel bearish about China's position? Yeah, I'm, I'm bearish about China because I see, well, I'm bearish about authoritarian regimes and they have benefited, I believe, from the last 50 years of this uh, fiat dollar standard that we've been on. They've been able to expand their debt faster and greater. They've blown a bigger bubble than anybody else relative to their GDP. And so I don't think that they can keep that up. They will have massive civil unrest, which we see kicking off more and more in Hong Kong. And uh, to counter that, they're going to come down hard on their people. So I see like China going towards the North Korea model more than a Taiwan model. Uh, so I'm, I'm definitely bearish overall on China. And if you, like, let's say you're a factory in Thailand or Vietnam and you have like some management teams that want to come in and help you run this facility. Uh, one's from China and one's from Japan. And this is, you know, you hear all this stuff in the news and you see how much repression that they're having over there in, in China. Uh, you're probably not going to pick the Chinese team. You're going to pick the Japanese team to come in. So that's how I kind of see Japan moving into China's turf. Have you thought about any of the other um, s surrounding Asian countries that could benefit and or uh, take away market share from China? I'm generally bearish India. I don't know. I know there's lots of red tape and uh, it's a, there's conflict like land border conflict with China. Uh, so I don't know if they're going to be able to get off the ground, but I'm generally bearish or bullish on India and bearish on China. Uh, all the other kind of region, uh, regional powers there, I would be more bullish on than China. And really it just has to do with authoritarianism and making mistakes from like a centralized point of view, like a centralized decision-making point of view. Yeah. And it has to do with, um, on a monetary, uh, well, okay, kind of the background there is that the CCP most likely won't make it out of the decade either. I, I don't think they will. And so uh, the, once that breaks up, you know, China might splinter, the yuan will crash. And so uh, it's going to be very hard uh, for them to maintain like any sort of hegemony over the region. Man, popcorn and fireworks, if that happens, like that would be absolutely insane. That plus Europe breaking down, like it just seems like too much. Well, it's, it's the dollar system, you know, this whole entire global financial system, uh, global social order has been propped up by the dollar. And it's also been propped up by the U.S. and it's like protection of global trade and push towards globalization when the U S kind of pulls back from the 
role of world policeman, which I think they will in the, in the near future, then, uh, you know, a lot of these dominoes are going to start to fall. You don't think that China just takes over as world policeman and usurps some of uh, the U.S.'s role? It's possible they want to, but China has never been able to project power in its entire history. I don't think it's going to start now. There's a lot of geopolitical things that are boxing China in, and I don't think that they have a sound foundation to take it on. I tend to agree with that. Again, I I think that centralized, I think it stems from centralized decision-making and communism and authoritarianism. It just is a bad strategy long-term. It can only work for a short period of time. Agreed. So Christian, you tell me, what do you think, uh, how does Bitcoin play into uh, this whole, like as people are getting laid off and the labor force participation rate, maybe some people are not um, excited about looking for work. How does Bitcoin fit into that uh, from a personal level and then from a financial level, how do you think Bitcoin fits into this? I believe that Bitcoin is the is the right money. It's the right idea. It's the right format for what people need in this specific time. There's a really famous investor and businessman and entrepreneur named Jeff Booth, and he's recently written a book about the deflation that is caused by technology, how he thinks this is going to impact society. And in particular, why he thinks a deflationary or fixed monetary system is needed. And he, in particular, thinks that Bitcoin could fill that role. As we lose jobs to technology and inflationary money becomes unsustainable, people need a different way of holding onto their value, given the fact that they maybe can't monetize their time as effectively. Bitcoin as a monetary system becomes very appealing. Yeah, my, well, my basic thoughts are similar to that, is that um, there is going to be massive pain from deflation, and technology is going to give us a way to have a parallel economy. So uh, Bitcoin, I think, is going to almost decouple from everything else, and uh, people are going to move on to Bitcoin, and there's going to be a Bitcoin-centered economy, and that's going to grow and grow. So that's what I hope, and that's what I see for Bitcoin. What what does society look like moving out of this paradigm where the world is burning down to some degree? How does it transition into a Bitcoin system in your mind? Flight to safety, mainly. People are looking for where to get out of the euro. They're going to look at dollars, gold, and Bitcoin. Bitcoin's going to be in that conversation. And they might try to save it with some sort of Plaza Accord 2.0 or Bretton Woods 2.0. And if they do that, the trump card is going to be Bitcoin. So, you know, some G20 country is going to say, we're not going to sign on to this uh, because you're discriminating against us or whatever. We're just going to go to Bitcoin. You know, so Bitcoin might not be the answer for the big powers, but it's definitely going to be in the conversation and it's going to be a threat in, in the back of everybody's mind. The value is just going to leak over to Bitcoin. You kind of alluded to moving back to maybe a one earner model. Maybe it's even a gig model where everyone's just kind of part time. Or, or you have assets that you can better monetize via Bitcoin um, and, and micropayments or streaming payments, stuff like that. Like, what do you think that, you know, adopting Bitcoin looks like for just average people? Culturally, I think that Bitcoin is, you know, a sound money is very productive towards like family oriented localism. I think that will grow, whether that's a direct 
result of this crisis or where we're at right now, I think it's a direct result of Bitcoin that there's going to be many more one income families that have a savings in Bitcoin and that is a safety net for them. Even coronavirus is is stimulating localism uh, just because it's locking down borders a little bit. It's making it difficult to move around. It's making individuals forced to use and and give back to their own circles and their own networks more directly. Like, I don't know. I've definitely thought that talking to my family more and talking to my old mm. friends more as a result of being stuck in indoors and not being able to, you know, go on a bus or go in an Uber or, you know, go to this bar or whatever, like that has forced a level of quote unquote localism. And I'm sure it's, it's even, you know, felt on a like business level and, uh, you know, all, you know, throughout society. Yeah. It's brought communities closer together and it's made them question where the orders come from. Do the orders come from Washington? Do they come from Sacramento? You know, where are the orders for this uh, certain policy? And I think that that breeds more of a community feeling like it's us versus them sort of thing. Did you see that video on Twitter today where they had that group of people taking the sand out of the skate park? Yep. I get happy seeing that because I see a community coming together and saying, screw that. We're going to do what we want. Um, and so I hope that grows and continues. Given kind of like more community oriented cooperation in defiance of top down draconian measures, we've kind of discussed this at during the last podcast and we discussed like states breaking up. I think uh, there's going to be a lot more resistance to top down orders. There might not be a direct like uh, incentive to break away, at least in the United States and Europe. Definitely. I think there is. But there's going to be a resistance to top-down orders going back to, hey, we're the people, consent of the governed, that type of idea. So that's a positive. I think once people get a taste of that, it's really hard to go back. So hopefully it starts a direction that way. In 10 years or 20 years, we'll look back and be like, yep, that was the turning point. Everyone said, no, you can't tell me to stay home. And they decided that they can throw off the chains of the government. Yeah, that's actually something that I've been thinking about as well is um, to some degree, like the government just doesn't have the resources to stop the masses. If the masses mobilize in one direction or not, or even just against the government or against, you know, what is being told to them, even even, you know, the army with guns can't necessarily do much um, outside of just murdering everyone, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, I said in one of my newsletters, I was like, that the unfortunate or the hard truth is that we locked ourselves down because there's no way that they can actually imprison you in your home, right? Like if the people didn't want to be there, they could all agree to come out and uh, go about their lives the way they normally would. Uh, but some, for some reason, people wanted to listen and obey the, the government, but they don't have to, and they will slowly learn that especially with Bitcoin, you know, enabling, giving people that safety net, giving people this uh, uh, hope for the future. Um, so that's one of the things I love about Bitcoin is that it is like it changes your, your outlook of the future, makes you a more positive person. Because you have Bitcoin. Because of this, if you understand it, it's a safety net. Yeah, and a lot, and you know, like we just talked about with uh, – Everyone's kind of depressed. You don't want to go back into the labor force. 
you don't know you just want to play your video games or whatever and you live in your basement with uh, of your parents house and bitcoin kind of makes you excited about the future and makes you want uh, ambitious makes you want to go out there and accumulate bitcoin so um i think it's very very beneficial in that way yeah, you and I think there's a good place to end the end the show. But in Bitcoin and markets, you talk about Bitcoin aligning incentives, and I think that like across so many facets, Bitcoin aligns incentives. Um, it's really quite beautiful. Yeah, that's uh, one of the best things about it is every place you turn, you d- you go down deeper in the rabbit hole, and every level you go down, you're like, holy crap, Satoshi thought of this too. You know? Do you think Satoshi actually thought of like all of these things, or <laughs> just happened to work out? No, I think once you get the principles right, you know, uh, and enable voluntary exchange, right? It, if you just have censorship resistance, so many things follow from that. Really interesting top diving into the current global situation, seeing how the U.S., maybe because of the Cantillon effect, is able to, to sustain a lot more, a lot more unemployment and other countries mm-hmm. are able to at least manipulate that number down or, or not realize it uh, directly. Um, I thought that was really interesting. And then talking about just you, the Bitcoin's impact in all of this, I think this was really interesting too. So this is a great show. It, this is, has so many wide ranging uh, tentacles that we could go on and on for days. And, you know, one of my favorite things is the cultural aspect uh, to what Bitcoin is going to bring back to the world, like the negative cultural aspect of fiat and the positive cultural aspect of Bitcoin. And I think the unemployment really highlights some stark differences. So this was a good one. Awesome. Ansel, for people who want to learn more, where can they find you? Bitcoinandmarkets.com. That's my website for the pod, my other podcast. And you can sign up for my newsletter there. Awesome. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. Thanks for listening. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.